because I see grief as the absolute crux of what everybody who's awake and aware should be doing right now in this horrible time of chaos. That's author, life coach, and truth teller, Carolyn Baker. This week's guest on episode 108 of the Unplugged Podcast. Hello and welcome to another thought-provoking week of the Unplug podcast, where we unplug from the status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by igniting a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and activated world. And this is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly collapsing world. My name is Debo Zarco, warrior of truth cultural revolutionary, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your bi-weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful coastal British Columbia, Canada. And before I dive into this week's guest intro, I want to send out a massive, massive thank you and a shout out of total gratitude to Tori for her recent Patreon pledge. Tori, your support means so much to me, and it shows me that this sometimes very lonely work is being appreciated, and that means the world to me. It's what keeps me going. So I am, uh, I am sending you my gratitude, but I'm also sending you a massive public cyber hug. So thank you. Thank you so, so much, Tori. And for anyone else out there who is getting something out of this important body of work that I am offering, uh, every couple of weeks. I, I am grateful for anything that you can offer in support with a Patreon pledge. So, uh, just go to patreon.com backslash unplug podcast and join Tori in her willingness to, yeah, to, to, dive into the gift economy and to show her appreciation. All right. So now I know that I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Our world is in a massive state of collapse. And as a result, we're living in dire and very uncertain times. And one would have to have their head firmly planted in the sand to not understand how absolutely dire things really are on all levels. And I'm talking social, cultural, ecological, and also with our biosphere. And the collapse is accelerating at a rate that's impossible to keep up with. And as we all can see out there, it's just not pretty. And like I said, it's just, it's impossible to keep up with. There's flooding all over, you know, the Louisiana and the U.S. There's uh, uh, Arctic cyclones that are happening. There's incredible wildfires that are burning all across California. It seems to be endless. I mean, I can't, I can't even keep up with what's going on globally. This is just what's being told to me by uh, regular conversations. I find that the more information I have in my head, uh, the more depressing it is. So I tend to avoid it at 
not at all costs. I want to be able to know what's going on, but really to know the minutia doesn't help me in any way, but I know it's bad. I mean, I think we can all, we don't even have to know what the minutia is. We can feel it. It's, it's not, it's feeling uneasy out there right now. And as many of you already know by now, this spring, I released an 18 page essay that exposed a deep, deep inner knowing that has been with me all of my life. And when it was finally ready to fully emerge, I gave it voice. No holes barred, despite how painful it was for me. And the overwhelming response to that essay continues today. It changed my life in ways that I'm still adjusting to. And it also liberated me in ways that I didn't even know I was still bound to. And it connected me to amazing people like this week's guest. Carolyn Baker is the author of several books about our chaotic and collapsing times. She is a truth teller extraordinaire, and I just love her no holds barred, there's that expression again, willingness to just tell it like it is. Her background, her professional background includes adjunct professor of history and psychology for more than 10 years, psychotherapist in private practice for 17 years, and she's also a student of ritual and mythology and has continued her personal meditation practice for more than 30 years. Carolyn also offers life coaching both locally in her hometown of Boulder, Colorado, and also internationally. She is a prolific author. And she's also the host of the new Lifeboat Hour podcast, of which I had the privilege of being a guest on uh, not that long ago. Carolyn is also passionate about creating islands of sanity in a sea of global chaos. And this is where our work aligns. Carolyn and I both share a passion for inspiring passion, purpose, love, and presence in these turbulent and really very uncertain times. We both expose hidden truths and engage in difficult conversations that are normally swept under the rug in our denial-infected, pain-phobic culture. Now, where my work is primarily about critical thought and consciousness in our flatlined culture, Carolyn gets to the roots of our global crisis by exposing the toxicity of our culture economically, ecologically, politically, and in every shape and form that it presents itself. And in that expose, she inspires people to live fully now. And as always, this is an expansive and unapologetic conversation that goes to great depths. So prepare to be activated by Carolyn Baker. Welcome, Carolyn. I'm really excited to have you on this show. And after reading a couple of your books, this is actually a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a few weeks. And uh, we've had the, the benefit of having a Skype connection a few weeks ago, which really just kind of prompted my excitement that much more. So uh, after reading your books and getting to know a little bit more about your writing style, a little bit more about you, especially in Extinction Dialogues, I really want to dig into the essence of Carolyn Baker and really find out what makes you tick. So uh, in Extinction Dialogues, you mentioned that you were you had a fundamentalist Christian upbringing in a dysfunctional family system. I mean, is there 
such thing as a functional family system? Is there such thing as dysfunctional, as a fundamentalist Christian without dysfunctional alongside? <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm curious to explore that and how that shaped kind of the this rebelliousness that I, I captured from when I was reading the book. And also your teaching, your activism, and your eventual journey that uh, brought you to your own spirituality where you're doing the work today, creating islands of sanity. I read that on your website. I love that. Islands of sanity in our collapsing world. So, so welcome, and let's, let's dig into who you are. Let's start with that. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on your show. And um, yeah, where would you like to begin? Let's start with your upbringing and how that shaped the awareness that something wasn't right that led you on the path that you're on right now. So I know that you were a teacher and that you've got a really strong psychological uh, knowledge as well and background. So why don't we start, let's start with, um, just start with the foundation of your upbringing and then just kind of what the catalyzing moments were when you were younger that kind of prompted you to realize that something just wasn't right. Sure. Um, so let's go way back to um, to uh, two days after Hiroshima, August 8, 1945. Um, I came in certainly, clearly, literally with the nuclear age mm -hmm. and um, came into a, a fundamentalist Christian family in northern Indiana, which is very much the buckle of the Bible Belt. And um, I was an only child and my parents were, were very uh, strict fundamentalists and interpreted the, Bible, interpreted the Bible literally. And that's what I was raised on. And it was all about separation from nature, separation from each other, right, wrong, black and white, either or, um, and tremendous hypocrisy. Hmm. And I think that the hypocrisy was a gift to me in a sense because even though it was psychologically um, disturbing, it was also very clear, and I'm grateful that I had the capacity to see uh, the hypocrisy for what it was, and you know, really understand that something was wrong with this picture. And I was by by nature rebellious, and and so there was a lot of questioning. There was a lot of pushback. Um, you know, gave my parents a lot of trouble in elementary school. Then in um, middle school and high school, I shaped up because the, the oppression and suppression was so great that I realized if I didn't, if I didn't toe the line and, you know, sort of play the role, that I would just be crushed emotionally. I didn't actually understand how that would play out or what that might look like, but I had a sense of it. Um, and so I went along with the program and, and even, you know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't say, I couldn't have said consciously, well, I'm just going along with the program. I really believed in, you know, and embraced these things that my parents were, were teaching. And at about the age of 12, 13, around puberty, I realized that I was a lesbian didn't have any words for it, but I felt the attraction to other females. And of course, I knew instantaneously that I couldn't talk about that. My parents must never know. 
And so I got through high school. I was a Bible thumper like my parents. I was raised in a very racist environment. Uh, have since had to do a lot of work on that. Um, and then they shipped me off to a fundamentalist Christian Bible college. I was there for two years and got kicked out for being involved with another woman, yeah, uh, which, was a, which was a blessing because then I got to go to a major university, uh, Michigan State University, and um, studied history there and got my degree there. And it was, of course, in the throes of the 60s and the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. I got very radicalized. and. And I want to say, since we, we know that the, the NSA will be listening to this, um, when I say radicalized, I don't mean radical Islam. I mean um, really looking from a more progressive perspective at the world and seeing that the war in Vietnam was totally unjustified and immoral and really embracing the civil rights movement and realizing the uh, madness and hypocrisy and brutality that I was raised with in terms of race. And so, you know, I certainly left the fundamentalist Christian perspective, dropped that like a hot potato. Um, and, you know, I was sort of an atheist for a while. And, um, and then I did some psychedelic drugs and realized that there was, there was something beyond me. I don't know what it was. I call it something greater. Um, and, you know, it put me on a search. And so I've kind of been on a search throughout my adult life, um, never having any answers with certainty, but being drawn to certain ways of thinking and feeling and being in the world that, that fit with my sense of what that something greater is or, or what it means for me personally. Uh, so that, you know, that that's, was the beginning of a long journey of, of spiritual investigation and political exploration and changes uh, here and there in my life, um, bringing me to where I am now. And I, and I wrote an autobiography in 2006 uh, about my life called, called Coming Out of Fundamentalist Christianity, uh, <laughs> which people can get on Amazon. And it's... Uh, I was 60 when I wrote it, so it was, you know, my life uh, up through that that period of time. I'll probably write a part two at some point. I'm not sure when. I think I might be getting ready to write that. Um, but yeah, um, it was important for me to write all that, as most people say about their memoirs. You know, it's very important for me to put all that out there and be able to just stand back and look at it with some perspective. And uh, I know a number of other people have been motivated and inspired by it as well. Now, you, were, you had a uh, background in teaching as well. How did you get into that? Well, first of all, uh, let's talk about that um, I moved to Northern California in the 1980s and uh, decided to become a psychotherapist. So I was a psychotherapist in private practice for 17 years. Also, during that time, I did um, about 11 years of very deep, intense union therapy as a client myself which completely altered my life. Um, I wouldn't take anything for those 11 years and the money spent. I wouldn't take a dime back because of the way it transformed my life and really did allow me to live. Um, my life had fallen apart at the age of 40 for a number of reasons and th that work put me back together again and helped make me whole, without which I probably wouldn't be here now. 
Um, and then um, late 90s, I had been going out to the Hopi Reservation in northern Arizona for about five years, just going back and forth from there to northern California, learning a lot about um, that culture mm-hmm. and Native American spirituality in general, just as an observer. Um, and something just profoundly called me to the Southwest. And it wasn't that I was called, you know, to Hopi or anything like that. I ended up in New Mexico. And uh, that's where I began teaching. And I taught um, ESL for a while. And I taught uh, history and psychology. And uh, was able to inject some of my radical views into both, both disciplines, which was kind of fun, kind of scary. Um, and then uh, it was in really... Well, I can tell you about meeting Mike Rupert, if you want to find out more about that. I don't know if you have any questions about how I got into the work I'm doing right now. I'm definitely curious. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I definitely want to find out. I'm, I'm always curious. Like I have this voracious curiosity to know what makes people tick and then how they got into the work that they're doing today. Because right now you are doing really, really important work. And not just right now, I mean, you've been doing it for quite some time, really important work about um, bringing to the forefront of consciousness the necessity for connection and love in a time of, of deep, 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 dire crisis. And so for me right now, my curiosity is how you got from this fundamentalist Christian background to what you're doing today. So how, like everybody has such an interesting story. And that to me is always like the, the foundational point is to find out the, the story that and the cathartic moments and pivotal moments that, that brought people to where they are. So yes, I definitely want to find out more about how you got to where you are today. Now I know you also uh, wrote about in Extinction Dialogues that you for you were, you faced your own mortality. And I'm curious to know how that has also shifted your own personal paradigm and how that's um, expanded your the work that you're doing today. But first, let's talk about a little bit more about the journey to get to where you are today. And then let's just dive deeper into your spirituality, because that's a really key uh, talking point for this show. Okay, that sounds good. Um... So we're back to when I was teaching in colleges, history and psychology um, in the early years of, of uh, 2000. And um, in the year 2000, I was just kind of, you know, going along in life and being sort of your basic liberal Democrat. And uh, I met a guy named Mike Rupert. Uh, Mike Rupert was a whistleblower who had been forced out of LAPD because he refused to help LAPD and the CIA traffic drugs in Los Angeles in order to finance the Contra Wars under Reagan. And so he had quite a story to tell, and he had a website called From the Wilderness, and he was making uh, DVDs and, um, and writing lots of articles. And I met him, as I said, in 2000, and uh, began to really question a, a lot of things that were going on around me. I'd already had questions about the 2000 selection in the United States. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> something was really wrong with that picture. 
And I didn't totally get it until I began to speak with him and learn more about, you know, how the government works, how the world works. And then 9-11 happened. And Mike wrote, uh, you know, prolifically about that and uh, certainly raised more questions. I began to meet other 9-11 truth tellers, had a lot of questions. Um, and then I began to talk about this a little bit in my classes. I was very very scared uh, to talk about this at first in my history classes, but then um, as the Iraq war, um, you know, really heated up and as more of my students' relatives were coming back in body bags, mm. it, it became more comfortable and permissible to talk about, you know, the inconsistencies, the hypocrisy. And so I, I did begin talking about that in 2006, I felt like I had to write about this, and I didn't want to write a textbook, and I knew that if I did write a textbook, a history textbook, it wouldn't get published anyway. So I wrote this uh, supplement called U.S. History Uncensored, What Your High School Textbook Didn't Tell You. And it was kind of a compilation of, you know, supplementary material and articles regarding um, U.S. history from the end of the Civil War up until... Um, about 2002. And uh, it's, a, it's a juicy read. Some people call it Howard Zinn on steroids. Um, <laughs> I had fun writing it and I had fun using it in my classes. Um, and then I continued, um, I was by that time I was writing for Mike Rupert's organization and working closely with him. Um, he left the country in 2006 in fear for his life and went to Venezuela for a while and during that time I took over as managing editor of From the Wilderness and learned a lot more. Um, and then I got my own website in 2006, carolynbaker.net. And uh, what really, really impacted me at that point, because I was learning about peak oil and certainly learning about imperialism and, and the Middle Eastern wars and energy depletion and some of the geopolitics be, be around uh, energy depletion. But what really began to shift for me was um, I began to be aware of climate change. And so in 2007, mm -hmm. I saw the wonderful two-hour documentary, What a Way to Go, Life at the End of Empire, which anyone can watch on YouTube for free. The whole thing is there. And it's powerful. I can vouch for that. Yeah, it's very powerful. And it just profoundly impacted me. I began showing it in my classes. Um, I became acquainted with the filmmakers and I became really uh, profoundly aware that I was certainly living in a place that was, you know, southern New Mexico. I was living in a place that was not sustainable by any stretch and I didn't have a sense of community around me. And um, I needed to go to a different climate. It was extremely hot down there. And so I moved to Vermont for a year. And I taught in Vermont in a college there, again, psychology and history. The weather did not agree with me because I had lived in the West for 36 years and going back East and, and living in Vermont winters was not my cup of tea, but it was a good learning experience. I'm glad I did it. And long story short, I ended up in 2009 in Boulder, Colorado, where I live now, have no plans to leave, absolutely love it. But 
as a result of seeing what a way to go, and as a result of my training as a therapist, I begin to really wonder as I'm looking at what I saw as the collapse of industrial civilization happening before my eyes, and of course this was right in the middle of the financial collapse. There were all these websites about, you know, how to prepare for this, how to grow food, how to store food, uh, how to learn various skills. The transition movement was cranking up. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, people are learning a lot about logistical preparation and how to survive on a daily basis. But what are people going to do emotionally? Because mm. this is going to be profoundly chaotic. You know, we're going to have the breakdown of society. And how are people going to deal with this? So I made a lot of notes, and those notes turned into my first book on this topic, which was in 2009, Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse. That was self-published, and I figured, well, you know, maybe 20 people will buy it, no more. <laughs> and turns out that it was more accepted than I thought. And so after I moved to Boulder in 2011, I was involved in the transition movement. But again, I'm thinking, all of this is about the external. What about the internal world? And so I wrote Navigating the Coming Chaos, a handbook for inner transition, which is a toolkit. It's a spiritual, emotional toolkit for preparing for chaotic times. Again, I was surprised by the positive response to that. And in that period of time, I became friends with Andrew Harvey. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came out to Boulder in 2011 to do a workshop with me to just really support my work. And he certainly helped with marketing and publicity of my work. And then he called me one day and he said, I've started a sacred activism series with North Atlantic Books uh, in Berkeley. And I've recommended you for writing a book. And he said, what are you working on? And I said, well, I've always wanted to write a little 365 daily meditations book. And uh, I'm working on something right now called Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truths for Turbulent Times. I got 17 essays and 365 meditations. And so he said, well, get it into the publisher. So I did. And they accepted the book and they published it in two forms. There's the hard copy with 17 essays and, and 52 weekly meditations. And then they published a second ebook which has all of the rest of the 313 other meditations in it, which anyone can read online. So yeah, so that was very well accepted and, um, and things are growing and, and, and blooming and I'm loving what I'm doing. Uh, I started doing life coaching in 2013. I was getting lots of people coming to me with lots of questions about how to live how to navigate all of this emotionally and spiritually. So I started offering life coaching. And uh, then in 2015, I published Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, Cultivating the Relationships We Need to Thrive, in which I talked about everything in our world is a relationship. You know, it's like there are thousands and millions of relationships that we cultivate. And so I picked like 16 different ones and talked about those relationships. Again, another toolkit. 
And then in 2013, I was reintroduced to Guy McPherson, who I had known back in southern New Mexico. I'd met him there originally when he was very involved with peak oil. And I reconnected with him, and he actually had come to Boulder and did some lectures here. And then he approached me one day and said, um, he said, I have an idea for a book called Extinction. It's going to be about extinction. And he said, I'd like to have a conversation with me, the scientist, and you, the person interested in psychology and spirituality, like to call it Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. Mm. And I said, okay, but what publisher is going to take that? And, uh, <laughs> and so we did find a publisher. And uh, that book was published in 2014. Uh, it is quite an interesting conversation. And I was just mentioning to someone today that the science in that book that Guy brought forth was jaw-dropping at that time. And now, two years later, that science is off the charts horrifying uh, because it's gotten way, way worse very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, Another conversation with Andrew Harvey uh, motivated me to write my last book, the one that, that I finished this year, called Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. Another toolkit filled with lots of practices for helping us look at the shadow, understand what it is, and how it works in us personally, how it works collectively, and really help heal that shadow. You are such a prolific writer. That's one thing that I've really noticed on your website. I think, it, did I see 11 books? Have you written 11 books? Yeah. And you said that the first book that you wrote on this topic was in 2009, but had you written a number of books beforehand? I wrote a book way back in 1996 called Reclaiming the Dark Feminine. And then I wrote another book in 2000 entitled The Journey of Forgiveness. And that book was actually in conscious preparation for my mother's death. And that book uh, really helped me prepare internally for forgiveness and for um, seeing who my mother was and seeing who I was in relation to her. And then that was it until um, U.S. history. Wow, I don't know how you write so fast, but <laughs> I, I'm impressed. Well, I love, I love writing. I love writing, and um, I'm kind of sitting and percolating right now with what I want to write next because I'm not sure. But that's okay if I give myself a, a, a bit of a break because I've really been at it for several years. Well, I find that, uh, I think I mentioned this to you in our previous Skype call, is that uh, my second book was, it felt like it was, near completion then all of a sudden i finally said yes to this this message inside of me that was really not it wasn't allowing me to sleep properly and when i put out this essay that uh that listeners are familiar with now it changed the like it altered the course of this book and so now i'm doing a lot of rewriting and it's um it's a massive paradigm shift for me in i mean it's not it, so that's the thing it's it feels like a massive shift and at the same time it feels like i've gone full circle because i knew about all of this as a child and so now i'm actually just stepping into it and i just didn't feel safe before and and i think that this is a conversation that i definitely want to talk about is safety but this this whole 
conversation around collapse and human extinction is not one that is embraced easily by the masses at all, as a matter of fact. And I find that I can only go so far with people before I can see their eyes glaze over or I can actually feel their energy shutting down. So, um, you know, I have so many questions about this, but I think I want to just start, I want to start by talking about the dreaded D word, denial. Now, for most people, the dreaded D word is death, but in my world, it's denial. And and really, the two kind of go hand in hand, because I feel like denial is, well, we deny our own deaths for crying out loud, which to me means that we're denying life. So... I'm curious to know your thoughts on this and let's just, we, we can delve into both because you have already, you know, you've opened uh, the conversation about living with death in mind. And, and that's something that I speak about regularly on this show, having had many pivotal moments and catalyzing experiences with death in my own life that have really inspired me to live more fully now and more in a very, very present way. So for me, I feel like I have a really intimate relationship with, with death. And I don't, I don't even like calling it that because to me, it's more like just departure. I would rather call it departure. And I feel like that has inspired a, a tender sacredness in every moment that I live my life, even more so now since putting out this essay. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about denial. Let's talk about death and let's just talk about how Denial of death and denial of what's really going on out here is actually expediting the collapse and it's also expediting the potential for human extinction. Well, death and denial are inextricably connected because what we're ultimately denying when we don't want to talk about these things is our own death. We are a very, very immature culture in terms of death. Uh, We're clueless about it. We have never been schooled in death as many indigenous traditions have been. And this leads me to one of my favorite subjects, which is initiation or rites of passage. Because initiation, rites of passage in indigenous cultures uh, have always been about, to some extent, confronting death. And confronting it as a as a young person in around the age of puberty for a very very important reasons. I like to say that we are in a planetary rite of passage. Hmm. And if the planet is in a rite of passage, then every single person on it is as well. So I've written and talked a lot about initiation or rites of passage in, in the big picture. So has Charles Eisenstein. And uh, so has Michael Mead, who's one of my mentors and and great teachers uh, out of uh, Seattle. Um, Another hero of mine is Richard Rohr, who's a radical Franciscan priest in Albuquerque. And he recently did a little series. He sends out daily meditations, and he recently did a series on initiation. And, you know, just to give you some, some background on what it was because a lot of people don't really understand, initiation didn't start at puberty for kids. It started at conception. And so when the mother became pregnant, oftentimes the elders would come and listen 
at her belly because they knew that the child was bringing something. The child was bringing a gift or many gifts. And so through the whole nine months, you know, the elders, male and female, were listening and tending this woman and trying to understand what, what this child was bringing. Then the child is born, there's a naming ceremony, big celebration, and the whole time the child is being schooled, the child is being prepared for rites of passage. Because these folks in their wisdom know that you can't just let a kid grow up without this. If you do, it's going to be tragedy for the kid and tragedy for the community. So the kid is getting prepared and actually he or she starts looking forward to this initiation, but with lots of information about it's not going to be a party, it's going to be really hard. So the elders take the young person out into nature. Women take the girls, men take the boys. And the child is asked to do some very difficult ordeal, a very dangerous ordeal, um, for a few days. And the child is supported in terms of, yeah, the elders bring him or her food and water, but they kind of stand back and they watch as this young person has to do this dangerous, difficult ordeal that forces them to reach down within themselves and find something that is greater than them, at which point they are transformed. They're no longer a child. And they begin to really understand from on a cellular level what their purpose in life is. And they come back to the community. They're welcome. They're celebrated wildly. And then they begin to take their place, whatever that is, in the community. They grow. They nurture. They serve. And then they become elders to younger people. Now, Richard Rohr talks about five really important things that a young person learns in initiation. Can you imagine if our children learned this? First of all, life is hard. It's not all about fun and happiness and a lot of the time it hurts. Secondly, you are not that important. <laughs> In the age of the selfie? <laughs> In the age of, you're special. <laughs> Thirdly, your life is not about you. Fourth, you are not in control. And five, you are going to die. Boy, have we ever missed the mark on all of them. So, because we are this culture of uninitiated children, it's almost impossible for us to do anything but deny. Hmm. Because we don't, most people don't have the tools. They're not equipped to deal with what's going on. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching somewhat, we're recording this as, as the Orlando terrorist and hate crime attack has taken place. And I've been on and off watching some of the coverage for the last couple of days and watching all of the vigils that happen as they did after 9-11. Vigils in different cities. There was one here in Boulder last night. There are vigils happening all over the country and I think all over the world mm -hmm. um, as people are coming together to mourn. 
And I'm so glad to see that people are coming together to mourn. And it really needs to go deeper. And we can, we can get into a deeper conversation here at some point about grief, because I see grief as the absolute crux of what everybody who's awake and aware should be doing right now in this horrible time of chaos. Uh, but that's a little bit about initiation. And so, you know, Carl Jung traveled all over the planet and studied a lot of these indigenous cultures and their initiation practices. He came back to Europe and he said, well, you know, we don't have these formal initi initiation practices, but what we have are just our daily lives. Mm -hmm. We have these mini initiations in our lives, like divorce, like losing a job like a bankruptcy, like um, a foreclosure, like a, a terminal illness, like losing a body part, or, you know, you name it. And the more we can open to these little deaths, the more it prepares us for the big death. The greater, the bigger as persons we become, the larger our sense of who we really truly are, our sense of purpose and meaning. And we become more whole as we embrace these initiations and learn from them and not try to avoid them. And, you know, that's what this culture is not really able to do right now. And so we keep having them, initiation after initiation after initiation. And it seems like we keep getting these opportunities to awaken and we keep blowing the opportunities. But some people don't. Some people are, some people are, not the majority, but a few people are able to look at this and really say, what's going on and what is there here for me to learn? Mm. What's the message and the meaning in this? And how can I be of service? And how, well, what is my calling to help make a difference, regardless of the outcome? Because we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. But regardless of, of the outcome and where this all goes, what is my purpose? What service can I offer? What difference can I make? And very importantly, which we talked about in Extinction Dialogues, is how can I live my life with passion? Not going around with this constant, oh my God, we're going extinct. What's the point? Eat, drink, and be merry. Screw it. But rather, okay, we are in hospice. And so what do I do in hospice? You know, I had a friend who passed on May, May 1st, 2013. She was in hospice for a month, and I talked to her about every other day on the phone. And, um, you know, I watched, I watched her go to this place, which she said was the most nurturing place she'd ever been in. And it was almost like a taste of heaven being there in the last month because she got to connect with people in ways that she couldn't connect before. People loved her in ways that she'd never allowed herself to receive and on and on and on. So hospice is an enormous opportunity if we're willing to say, okay, I'm in hospice. How can I receive? How can I give? What's the meaning and purpose of this for me? Hmm. You brought up so much right now. I've been kind of making some notes as you're talking. Like the, definitely, I, I really want to get into the topic of grief. That is probably one of my favorite things to talk about. 
which uh, I know from a cultural perspective probably sounds morose, but to me, it's probably the most sacred thing that we can actually, the, the, it, it's a sacred experience. Grieving is an experience. It's not an emotion. It's a series of emotions that lead us to the deepest essence of our love for everything, for life. So I definitely want to get into grief. I'm very passionate about that topic. You brought up the fact that we're talking, you know, uh, just shortly after the Orlando shootings and we both, before we started recording, we were both talking about the heaviness in our hearts for this. And it's, it's, I'm feeling really heavy as I'm talking to you, which to me is, um, it's just a sign of my love for the world. And I, I heard you, I'm going to back up just a little bit because uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts and you were talking about trauma. Uh, in that podcast, I'm just going to try and remember what you said. You were, you talked about how you, you believe that everybody's walking around with some form of PTSD and how the shadow of this world is running rampant these days. And when I heard that language, I thought, that makes so much sense. And although I don't pay much attention to mainstream news, I was really curious about what's been playing out uh, after this after this horrific shooting. And I watched a video on uh, on CBC, so the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, on on that news channel. And it was they were interviewing a young man who lived in the neighborhood and he was he used that word he's traumatized and he said he will probably have this trauma for the rest of his life and it made me think about our conversation today so looking at that horrific act of hate and violence as just one symptom of this global crisis. If we look at this entire global crisis through the lens of trauma, I'm curious to know what you have to say about that. You know, considering all of the mass shootings and the wars and the human violence and the ongoing destruction of the earth, it's a lot to take in. No wonder there's so much trauma. And yet we live in this pain phobic world where anytime we feel any inkling of discomfort we pop a pill or we you know we we drink or we take drugs or we do anything to avoid it and i feel like that just perpetuates the trauma that much more so i'm going to just throw this out your way now and just see where we go with this because i have a feeling it's going to be very rich well the trauma that you mentioned um the external trauma of wars and uh climate change and all of that, yes, those are real and those are bombarding us every day. And what's also true is the trauma that's inherent in industrial civilization. Because we're born into, um, we're born into immediate separation. Mm -hmm. we're, we're just, separation is one of the largest traumas that I can think of because it's unnatural. It is natural for us to be connected with tribe, to be connected. You know, it's like that your mom, your mom and your dad had to be your mom and your dad by themselves is it, traumatic. You know, that's unheard of in traditional cultures. Um, I did some work. I had the privilege of doing some work 
back in the 90s with Sobanfu Somay, who's a African shaman woman, and she now does amazing grief rituals here in the United States. And she once made the statement, she said, um, I had so many mothers that I wasn't sure who my own mother was. So being born into separation is kind of like the baseline trauma. And then, you know, we grow up and we're socialized in these schools that teach us more about separation and there's no initiatory process. I believe that not having a rite of passage is traumatic. Hmm. And it, you know, it ill prepares us for going into the world. We, you know, all of the educational systems and the whole, the whole economic system of industrial civilization, which is about acquisition and consumerism, all of this is traumatic and on and on and on and on. And then, you know, most people in industrial societies experience some form of abuse whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. So that by the time we graduate from high school, we're, we're pretty well schooled in trauma. Only we don't know that, that that's what it is. And so just the trauma of growing up in this culture and then we're bombarded with all these other trauma. And we go out in the world, the United States goes out in the world and creates all this trauma for people. And then we wonder why we have endless streams of refugees. You know, and we wonder why we have all this, all this human suffering. I feel like there's this covert trauma that is uh, perpetuated by every system that comprises this industrial machine that swallows our souls whole and separates us from, from the natural world, from animals, from each other, and even from ourselves. And despite that, I feel like even though we live in an unfeeling culture that is pain phobic and does everything that it can to really separate from um, our own humanity, I feel like most people know on, on an unconscious level and some on a conscious level that there's something really seriously going on with our world and with our planet and that we're in a really, really dire predicament. And it's playing out in a multitude of dysfunctional ways from addiction and bullying to the mass shootings, uh, depression, anxiety, suicide. And it's just endless what's going on with this collective madness. And I don't remember it being this way in, in my childhood. Now, of course, there was like a fraction of the humans on the planet at that time and things, it was, it was a different era, but we're now crowding each other out. We keep on reproducing. We've got, there's an overpopulation crisis and with each new childbirth to the world, world, there's just another, there's another consumer. So there's more consumption. There's a lot going on right now that's playing out. So I'm curious to know with your psychological background and also with your many years of experience on this topic, what you have to say about this, um, this collective unconscious or the shadow, I guess, because I heard you and Andrew Harvey talking about the shadow and how that's really kind of taking over the, the collective human psyche right now. And that's what's bringing out this insanity that we're seeing in every aspect of human life. Well, that's exactly right. Um, 
the shadow is a part of us that we're not aware of. You know, people sometimes joke and say, well, you know, my shadow is this and my shadow is that. Um, and, you know, I would call that the dark side because I'm aware of it. Hmm. The shadow is, is pretty much unconscious. And, you know, it's, it's a part of us that is contrary to the image we want to have of ourselves. You know, we say, I mean, how many times a day do I hear people on, you know, in mainstream media saying, well, I'm not racist. Including Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, of course, especially Donald Trump. Yeah. Anybody raised in the United States who's white is racist, you know, and people of color are racist. And, you know, it's all about separation. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we do not make the shadow conscious, when we, first of all, don't even know we have one. Uh, or if we do know we have one, we, we don't do shadow work. We don't make it conscious. Um, then we just go and continue to act it out. The shadow doesn't just lie there dormant. It has to, it, it's restless. It wants to have action. And so what we do is we project it on other people. The reason mm -hmm. Donald Trump is such a shadow magnet is that he's drawing, you know, drawing out like a poultice draws out poison from <laughs> the American public, all of their projections on people of color and people of other genders and orientations and so forth. And he's creating this wonderful, many wonderful scapegoats for people to project on. The shadow loves that, you know, because what happens, what in shadow healing, what happens is that we are compelled to explore this shadow, to find out what it is. And usually we'll find out through some sort of eruption of kind, some kind of projection and then we go back, if we're willing, we can go back and look at, well, how did that happen? And what part of me was that? And then we can do some work on it. And if we can do some work on it, we can transform it so that we take back that projection, which is usually a painful process, a somewhat painful process. And we say, oh, okay, I'm projecting. Now, why do I need to do that? What part of me is in pain that I need to do that? What part of me is fearful that I need to do that? And as a result, it's hard work, but as a result, there's tremendous joy and tremendous power in that process. And my 2016 book, Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis, is a toolkit for how to do shadow work and why that's important and why it is really ultimately a process of joy and empowerment. Hmm. You know, when you were having that conversation with Andrew Harvey, uh, there were so many things that, that you both brought up that I found really, really important. And one of them that you talked about was this, this shadow that comes with fundamentalist religion, as well as that the new age mindset that seems to have taken over the uh, so many minds these days right. this fifth dimensional consciousness and whatever it is you know the crystal balls and all the stuff that they talk about and I really I loved what you guys had to say about that and I'm wondering if you could just share some of that about the how the shadow is really it, it comes out in in both fundamentalist religion which I think most people are probably aware of but I'd love your take on that 
But the new age mindset too, like it makes me crazy because it feels like, to me, it just feels like it's perpetuating the problems. And I know that you and Andrew spoke so eloquently about that. So if you could just share your thoughts on that, that would be great. Sure. Well, in fundamentalist Christianity, uh, we see the shadow popping out all the time. Uh, I certainly saw it when I was growing up with, um, you know, people ranting and raving, screaming and tearing their hair out about sexuality and then, you know, having all these affairs. And when I was growing up in the 50s in northern Indiana, you know, it's like nobody ever said the word homosexuality. But you would see every now and then all these preachers getting arrested. You'd see it in the paper. They were arrested on morals charges. That's what they used to call it back then, on a morals charge. And, you know, there was no, a a guy might get a fine or go to jail for six months. And, of course, nobody talked to the victim. You know, it was just like, uh, it was was brutal. and then we see, you know, since we've had the age of the televangelists, we see, you know, uh, these televangelists like Jimmy Swagger to, you know, rant and rave and scream and pound the Bible about sexuality. And then, you know, an hour later, they're down at the whorehouse. <laughs> uh, you know, so there's that kind of uh, shadow repression and acting out. And then with the new age, um, it's like everything is beautiful and wonderful. There's no ranting and raving about uh, bad behavior. It's just, oh dear, well, we don't think about those things. You know, we're just keep a, a positive attitude. And it's sort of like blinders. And uh, in, a, in a new age church or group, you might, you might hear a little talk about, well, let's do some recycling and let's, let's go green and blah, blah, woof, woof. But there's no uh, real talking about climate change, catastrophic climate change. Oh, my God, we're burning up, you know. Or, or if we think about it, then we're just making it worse. Exactly, exactly. One of the things that happened is very similar to in the fundamentalist Christian scene. Um, we have in the New Age community a rabbi named Mark Gaffney, who's become a darling of a lot of New Age groups, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really become very clear in the last few years that he has molested a lot of women, sexually assaulted a lot of women. I wrote some articles about Gaffney and New Age spirituality, which were published in Huffington Post. Um, and there are still people who, in the New Age movement who are defending him and, uh, you know, say that, well, he didn't really do all these things. But anytime, anytime there's repression of the shadow, it's going to come out in some way, whether that's yelling and screaming and pounding on the Bible or whether it's, oh, everything's beautiful. Let's have, you know, take, give me my crystal. Um, either way, there's a denial of the shadow. Oh, I'm so glad to be able to speak to somebody like this <laughs> because it, it, seriously, it makes me crazy. I, I feel very... Uh, I feel very triggered by the whole new age mindset. Now, I have a personal um, experience with that because this the whole new age mindset was a, a contributing factor to my mother's untimely demise. So I have my own baggage around that that I've needed to work out. And so it, what it did was I explored new the new age mindset myself so I could understand what the attraction was and it's seductive 
it's very seductive and I got seduced into it in the early 80s you know as I was as I was rejecting all of this fundamentalist stuff I was uh, living in Southern California which of course is just uh, <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's a hothouse for the new age you know and um, and so I started attending some New Age churches and got very deeply into all of the positive thinking. And that is when, as I mentioned earlier, my life fell apart at 40. Uh, that's when my shadow just, you know, whooped me upside the head. And um, there was all of this stuff that I was denying because I wanted to think pretty thoughts and feel good. Um, and yada, yada, and the law of attraction and all of that, you know, um, what does Andrew call it? Um, he calls it, I think, a, a, a methane drip of happiness. <laughs> he has such a way with words. Yeah, doesn't he, though? <laughs> uh, Mr. Oxford. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, I, I fortunately was, was whipped upside the head uh, to realize that I was being seduced and that, you know, I was going down a path that, that was eventually going to bite me in the butt worse than I was already be being bitten in the butt. Um, but it's very seductive, especially when you're coming out of fundamentalism. It's like, oh, man, who wouldn't love this? You know, pretty thoughts and love, 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 love. Not so. <laughs> well, this I want to go just a little bit deeper into this, the, the cultural addiction to happiness. And with that cultural addiction to happiness, which is, it's always looking outside, outside, outside and neglecting what's inside. And so with that cultural addiction to happiness, I feel like that's what leads us to that absence of joy. And, you know, happiness is one of those fleeting states, but now here's what's interesting. And I'm sure you probably really get this is we talked where I want to still explore grief with you. Sure. I grieve so much. I think I grieve something every single day or the grief is just, a, it's a sustained state because of the, you know, where we're at in our world. How can we not be grieving? If we love the world, how can we not be grieving? So I find like I'm holding the two, I'm holding the love and the grief at the same time. And underneath all of that is a deep sense of joy. And I think that people have this misconception of what joy is. Joy is is a happy state. Now, for me, I personally don't feel like joy is a happy state. It's a peaceful state. The way I look at joy, it's stable and peaceful. So it's an inner peace despite the turmoil of what's happening externally. So I know that you and Andrew are actually writing a book about joy and I'm curious to know um, for you how you differentiate the, differentiate the two between uh, joy and happiness and what your thoughts are about this, this happiness addicted culture that we live in, but the joyless culture that seems so absent of real true feeling and emotion and is just really separation. Absolutely. Um, so we talk about in our book and the working title for it right now is return to joy vibrant living in a flatline culture and flatline culture is really important because in this culture we are taught uh, not to feel too much of anything 
we're searching for happiness which is very circumstantial you know I got a new girlfriend I got a new boyfriend I'm happy I got a new car I'm happy I got a raise or a promotion I'm happy or you know I, I went to a party I'm going to the club and you know whatever um, and we're we're constantly searching for happiness we do it mostly in this culture by consuming things mm -hmm. so happiness happiness it's circumstantial. If all of that stuff is taken away from me, then I'm not happy. Joy is a whole different thing. Joy is a spiritual reality that I have within myself that is present whether I am making lots of money, whether I'm madly in love, whether I look beautiful or not. It's a, a state, a spiritual condition within myself that I can go back to when I feel unhappy. Hmm. Uh, you know, because happiness comes and goes. If I cultivate joy, if I have this deep connection with joy, which is all about meaning and purpose, it's all about the vibrancy of life and the juice of life and, and the bright colors and the beautiful sounds and really really being fully alive I can go back to that regardless of what my happiness status is and ironically paradoxically one of the persons in history who I think has some of the most beautiful things to say about joy is Viktor Frankl mm. who yes. wrote the wonderful book Man's Search for Meaning and and he talks about he may not use the word joy exactly, but when he talks about being in the death camp and being separated from his wife and knowing she's dead and watching all this horror day after day, he talks about when there were people who could find meaning in something that they were doing, even the smallest bit of meaning, they were more able to endure, they were more resilient. And, and he would return continuously to this pool of joy within himself, even in the midst of the horror. And that's what people in Western civilization don't understand. We've never experienced that deep reservoir of joy um, that is internal, mm. that's accessed internally, because it's not out there. That is such a that's such a powerful uh, way to describe what joy is. It resonates so deeply with me. I think that that's you know, kind of what I was getting at too. It is. It's a very, it's peaceful and stable. It's not an extreme state. It's something that is deep within, and it it can happen. At least in my own life, it usually happens in the smallest moments. For instance. Uh, you know, glancing over at one of the dogs, just doing, you know, eye wipes or something like that. I feel it inside there. And it's like, there it is. It is. It's a, it's a very stable, profound state. And I feel, you know, this is, our, again, with our culture, everything is sourced outside of ourselves. And we completely, like, we've explored so much of outer space and we've completely neglected our own inner space. And that's, our culture just perpetuates that too. So, um, on this same train of thought, I'm just, uh, I'm really curious to throw out a word to you that for me has, I've had a profound paradigm shift with it. And it's the word hope. 
Well, I don't use that word much because it's very difficult to use that word in this culture without people getting an external picture of, I hope that somebody's going to do this for me. I hope that somebody's going to find an answer to climate change. You know, I hope that we'll become a less violent society and on and on and on. I'm much more comfortable with the word inspiration and, and the word joy because these things are internal and, you know, it, it's kind of like it doesn't matter how it turns out in the end. It matters how I get through this process. And as far as how it turns out in the end with climate change, we're on a trajectory of profound destruction and extinction. I'm not saying there couldn't be a miracle, you know, anything's possible, but I certainly don't have hope that there will be a miracle um, in terms of climate catastrophe. And so I just don't use that word very much. Um, I can be inspired, I can be um, uplifted, I can be motivated to serve. I, you know, it's like, I don't go, I'm not a climate activist. I'm not out there right now and as a member of any organization trying to change what's going on in the climate. What I'm doing are other things, uh, other ways of serving in the world that demonstrate compassion and maybe make people's lives easier in the moment. I have a homeless friend that I invest a lot of time and energy in, him and his dog. And, um, you know, people might say, well, why are you doing that? Why aren't you out doing 350 marches? Well, because, you know, I am drawn to how I can serve and demonstrate my compassion uh, to a person who's probably not going to be that, that long for this world. And I'm not going to be that long for this world either. None of us probably are. And so how can I help? How can I serve? Um, and, and, and in the process of doing that, I am served. I am loved. I am blessed. And that's where my energies are at the moment. And writing books and speaking and doing my work, you know, and, and having conversations like this. And it's a beautiful um, self-perpetuating cycle that is, it fills, it fills us from the inside to do, to do this kind of work. Cause I get it too. You know, for, for me, I was an animal activist and environmental activist, and I just felt like I was completely burning myself and, you know, railing against the system is the system is, is too powerful. It's so deeply rooted in the human psyche that the incremental baby steps that we make usually end up with three or four steps backwards at some point when some law is overturned or some other thing comes to just squash it. So I feel like, uh, you know, this, this paradigm shift that I've had doing this kind of work, having these kind of conversations is actually inspiring more transformation, not to change the world just because it's, I can't not do it. You know, it's like, it's following my calling. And that is, that fills me from the inside and it makes me want to give more. And when I get these, you know, emails from people whose lives have been changed by something I said, or something a, a guest has said, 
It's like, wow, it's like rocket fuel. I just want to keep on giving. And that to me is the legacy that I want to live and leave. Even if there's nobody behind to get it in the end, it doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, I feel like uh, this is, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, what if we lived with purpose and did what we're called to do but not to save the earth, not to create a new paradigm, not to necessarily create a better future, but instead just because we can't not do it because it's our calling and because that's what we're meant to do. And what if we stood firmly in that present passion that's driving us to, to be who we're meant to be for no other reason than because that's who we are. And that lights me up. It excites me. And I'm just getting really activated sitting in my chair right now talking about this because I know that you get it. So what if we did these things? What if we just lived where we're meant to live right now and love the world as it is right now, even in its deeply compromised state and without any worries about the future and letting go of hope? And that's the thing for me is letting go of hope has actually brought me into a profound state of presence and I feel more activated as a result of that well that's absolutely right a profound state of presence and um, you know one of the things I tell people who come to me you know because I have clients who come for life coaching from time to time who who are very distressed and they find themselves addicted to the next bad news and they're sitting online and watching for it and and just feeling totally exhausted and debilitated and you know I talked to them about the the paradox of being present in the moment and preparing for the future and so yes we have to know these things that are going on and and how the future is likely and I say only likely to unfold because none of us knows mm -hmm. but we know that we're on a death trajectory in terms of climate catastrophe so, you know, okay, so I don't have any silly idealized notions about, oh, all that's going to get better. I pretty much know where it's headed. And I'm staying as present in the moment as possible. So I uh, highly recommend that people read Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now mm. and practice now, now, now. Um, you know, even he talks about and I think Eckhart Tolle is very aware of, of the global crisis and planetary collapse. <laughs> I know he is. And he talks about being really present. And, you know, yeah, you got plans to make and you got things to do in the future. The more you can be present now in this holy sacred moment, then when it comes time to make those plans, the better you're going to do in making them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I find that this this personal paradigm shift has brought me so much richness to my it's brought so much richness to my life. Not that my life wasn't rich before, but now it's like for some reason just this this perceptual shift, I don't really worry about the future. I'm not worried about how am I going to pay those bills? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How many more uh People, could I get to sign up for my email list or how many more readers can I get for my book? I don't care. It doesn't, none of it matters anymore. Yeah. And 
even the relationships that I have, the relationship that I have with myself is better, but the relationships that I have with others is better too. And I had no idea. I always thought I was a pretty present person, but now I know I, it's like I had writing this, this essay that I wrote. It's almost like, I feel like I had somewhat of an Eckhart Tolle kind of an awakening because I get it now pure presence, what that really is. Now, that doesn't mean that I can sustain it all the time. The worries do creep in. Sure. But I find that it's easier to get back to that present state. And one of the things, this is interesting too, one of the things that brings me to this present state is grief. So grieving what's happening in Orlando is bringing me to a state of profound presence. And I feel like now now is the time for us to talk about grief. Yeah. And how important this is not only for presence but for love. Grief and love travel together. And you know, Mary Oliver the poet says, "Grief and love, what a time these two have housed as they are in the same body." Uh, you cannot separate them. Grief is love, and real love is grief. Mm-hmm. And as I do grief workshops and weekends and talk about grief with people, I find that they always tell me my my ability to grieve has really increased my love and compassion. It's opened my heart. People also tell me that it takes them to that joy place within themselves. And so when I do a grief weekend, it's it's very common for people to say, um, you know, on the on the second night, uh, wow, or the second morning, I, I slept so well last night. After doing this work, I slept so well. I feel lighter. I can see the colors more vibrantly. I didn't real, you know, or people are laughing and getting silly and experiencing, you know, moments of profound joy with each other. But it has to be in a safe container. Yes. We yes. talked about safety a while ago and grief work whether you're doing a one-on-one like with somebody like me or you're in a grief weekend workshop with a bunch of people, it has to be a safe place. Um, and doing it in community is very, very profound because you're being honored, you're being thanked for doing the work rather than shamed by the culture at large. Or denied too. That's another thing too. People, uh, it's not just sh- shamed, but it's if you're grieving, if you're feeling, people just it's like, oh no, it's 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 okay. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And that is really, uh, gosh, I don't know how many times I've heard that one, and it hurts. It hurts. Like, don't deny what's true for me just because you're afraid to go there yourself. And I feel like our grief phobic world has translated into this this love absent world, and as a result, we're seeing what we're seeing playing out. Um, on the micro and in the macro. So from personal relationships or relationship with our own selves to what's happening with this, this dire crisis. So I, I, I just like, I mean, you and I could probably do a whole podcast on grief. Grief is just. (laughs) And I want to say something about here about activism, Um, activism and grief, because I talk with a lot of activists. And by the way, in terms of activism, um, I don't mean to sound when I talk about, you know, I've given up hope and I see the trajectory of where we're going and it doesn't look good and blah, blah. I don't mean to say, as I often, as I often uh, comment, 
I'm not putting on my favorite pair of pajamas and going to bed and pulling the head, the covers over my head. I think that engaged uh, work in the world, engaged in whatever calls us, whatever form of activism calls us, is really important. And if you're called to do climate activism, then do it. If you're called to do uh, community gardens and helping with local food, do whatever it is, do it. And as an activist, it's very important to do grief work because if all you're doing is is living in the fires of grief you will burn out you need the tears the water of tears and grief to sustain you and this is a hard one that you know i encounter activists who just don't want to go near it because oh it'll make me woozy and it'll make me not have commitment anymore and that's not true uh, people who have allowed themselves to grieve and be activists um, often report, hey, this has really increased my passion. This has made me more vibrant, made me more powerful in the world. So uh, I want to really support activists in doing grief work. I think that activists, you know, we as activists need it perhaps more than anyone. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like when um, during my activist days, there was a lot of anger, and I think that that's that's usually a driving force for that's the fire. Uh, that's, that's the fire, and it's important. It's important to have that anger. What's now the the the, the cautionary um, words that I have about that from based on my own experience is that it's easy to get stuck in that anger, and then that is projected in a way that just perpetuates more of the problem, more of the separation that whatever we're, uh, you know, we're railing against or whatever we're, um, uh, I'm trying to use the different language because the act activist language is always fighting for, fighting for, but whatever we want to see less of or more of in the world, when we're projecting that anger, it just creates more of that, more of that separation. So I find that in my own life, when I finally allowed myself to go to those grief places, it does, doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that I, I'm still not angry. I am angry, but I know that below the anger is grief and below the grief is the love. And to be able to access that, it's a different anger that comes out then. It's, then it turns into fire and passion. And it's a, yeah, a whole other activism. And I feel like, I mean, right now, this conversation is a form of activism. Yeah, it is. And one thing I want to say about grief and tears is, um, you know, the word emotion has the word motion in it. And so we often, we, we talk about getting stuck in certain emotions and people even say to me, I don't want to get stuck in my grief, you know. And what I say is grief is water and water flows. And, and so uh, if you allow that grief, if you allow that moisture, that, those tears, they will flow into something else. They will flow into joy. They will flow into passion. And that's very, very important to remember. Mm -hmm. And um, I think just to, uh, I, I'm going to wind things down now, but uh, I think that this is a great place to kind of segue into the necessity to have some kind of a practice to... Yes keep us grounded and centered so that the, and also to keep the motion going with the grief and with the anger and with all of those feelings, it's important to, you know, to, to live passionately and to live with purpose, but also to have some kind of a practice. 
so for me, it's really critical. Uh, you know, I was meditating for the longest time and then it just kind of naturally fell away on its own. Sometimes it comes back into my life. I feel called to meditate, but what works for me now more to keep me grounded and centered is just contemplative time in nature. So nature has always been uh, the a source of profound inner internal connection for me. What I'm noticing now is that I need to be in nature, not always moving, but I need to actually just sit. Just to sit and to listen to the sounds. Sometimes I close my eyes and just take it all in, but just to feel the energy of the old growth trees and the moss and the ferns or to hear the sounds of the ocean and, uh, and feel, feel Gaia. Cause I am feeling, I am feeling the energies. I can feel her grief and it becomes mine. And then I feel like this melding it's, it's kind of hard to articulate, but I feel this melding. And to me, it's a profound spiritual connection that helps me it helps me to keep on keeping on without falling into despair and being stuck in that. So I know that this is, this is, a the, you know, one of the main focal points for your work is this spiritual connection. So I'd like to just kind of wind things down with this and then we'll, we'll, I know you've got a poem and I would love to just kind of end with that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, as far as meditation, um, I encourage people if they're already doing a practice, they're familiar with the practice and it's comfortable for them to by all means do it. Um, I have a practice I've been doing for 37 years and and I love it and um, you know but not everyone is is in that place but I am adamant about contact with nature mm. and we in industrial civilization do not know how to be in nature so we have to learn how to be in nature. Um, now, you mentioned the ways that you're doing it, but a lot of people don't do that. They go into nature and they start thinking and they analyzing, oh, what kind of tree is that? What kind of fern? Oh, that's that bird. Yeah, I've seen that. In a, you know, and it's like contemplative is the key word that you said, how to be really present in nature. So I encourage people to uh, go out and have quality time, leave the phone in the car, no electronics and try to be in a place where there aren't too many people around or none at all and sit with your back up against a tree touch tactile smell taste see look listen and just be as present as you possibly can and let the feelings come and a lot of people say to me when i really do that then the grief starts and i say let it come let it come and really experience and feel how you are one with all of this. You know, that tree, I, and I sometimes encourage people to have conversations with trees or birds, you know. Just, I've had profound wisdom. Come oh, from, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. From trees. Um, and then also, um, back to indoor practices, or you can do it out there, journaling. Uh, people find that usually very, very helpful, journaling. And then another spiritual practice is just some kind of service. And I don't mean like service, I've got to get up and do this and it's my job. But, you know, service that is spontaneous, just expressing kindness. Practice expressing kindness everywhere you go. With the store clerk, 
with the person you're talking customer service online, you know, practice the kindness and feel the kindness and feel what happens to you when people are unkind. Mm. But living as much as you can from your heart. Which is, a, it's, it's a deeply, deeply embodied state. Yes, it is. Which is very different from our enculturation, which is to live from the neck up. Absolutely. So I'm just like, I have the benefit of watching you on Skype and, and you're very expressive and I can feel that you're really in your body. I'm feeling it in mine. And I think that this is really important to mention that everything that you're talking about is, is deep embodiment. It is deep embodiment. Uh, I encourage people to go to my website in the podcast section and listen to my interview with Philip Shepard, who's the author of New Self, New World. And this man really, really has a sense of embodiment like nobody I've ever seen in the modern world. Um, and this is where we've got to get to is our bodies. Because if we were truly fully in our bodies, um, none of what's going on around us mm -hmm. would be going on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for this. And I am, uh, I've been looking forward to this poem since you first mentioned it at the very beginning. So I think this is probably a great place to, to bring it in and to wind things down. Okay. Uh, this is a poem by Rebecca Del Rio, and she lives in Santa Rosa, California. Um, she's a prolific poet, and it's called The Pact. And I really like it because sometimes we ask ourselves, what did I sign up for? And why did I, why am I here right now? And what's going on? You know, why am I here at this moment? Well, I like this poem because it kind of answers that question. She says, It was broken before we arrived, the pact with life, shattered like crystal, heaved in fearful fury. All our lives we walk across the sparkling glass, bleeding out, breathing in the agony of ages. How could we know? We came as witnesses, our job to see beyond, even our own cynicism, the pessimism inherited from millennia and millions. Our work, immersed in mourning, inhale distilled sorrow, become an alchemist, convert loss into love. What a perfect way to end. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for, for sharing so much of yourself in this show and you'll be back. I'm going to make sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> this has been wonderful. I thank you so much for doing this and thank you for your work, Deb and your website and all that you are giving us in your work in the world. Thank you. That's Carolyn Baker for her first of many powerful conversations to come. And you can find the extensive show notes for this episode at devilsarco.com backslash 108. And I just want to mention that Carolyn is also co-hosting an online symposium called Active Love Beyond the 11th Hour with so many inspiring speakers, including, of course, yours truly. I'm deeply honored to be in wonderful company for this uh, very powerful and 
very timely symposium that looks like it's going to be quite amazing. And it commences on October 13th, and you can find out more on her website, on Carolyn's website at carolynbaker.net, or you can also find it in the show notes for this episode. And Carolyn is also putting on a grief workshop in Chico, California from October 7th to 9th. And details again can once again be found on her website at carolynbaker.net or in the show notes at devilsarco.com backslash 108. And when you're at my website, if you're not already on my email list, sign up for blog updates and so much more. And please support the ongoing creation of this show with a contribution through patreon.com backslash unplugged podcast. And also... Hey, with a coveted iTunes review, it all makes a difference. And each small act of support shows me that you want me to keep on keeping on. And there you have it, folks. The end of yet another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.